Well, good morning, everyone. Um, so we're going to begin a teaching series um, this morning that will run over the next, I think, six or so weeks in the, in the build-up to Christmas. Anyone already thinking about Christmas? A handful, a handful. It's going it's to hit you very soon. I've no doubt gospel choirs are preparing and all sorts of things are happening as we get ready um, for the festival season. So this series is entitled The True Image Revealed. And we're going to spend this time looking at the seven I am sayings of Jesus in John's gospel and then seven signs, seven miracles that John records in his gospel account. A very quick intro to John's Gospel. So there's four biographies of Jesus in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the Synoptic Gospels. They're like eyewitness accounts of what Jesus said, what he did, building up to the cross, and then the resurrection, and then his ascension. So if you read them through, they're fast-paced, there's so much action. And then you get to John's Gospel, and it just feels a little bit different. Um... For example, Jesus doesn't talk in parables in John's Gospel. He hardly ever mentions the kingdom of God. If you read the first three, Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God. And in John's Gospel, he only mentions it twice. Um, so this is how scholars refer to John's Gospel. Hopefully it appear on the screen that it's a theological retelling of the life, death and resurrection of Jesus, providing a window into the identity and mission of God, as well as the window into the identity and mission of God's redeemed people. So in John's Gospel, I'm talking about the kingdom all the time. John uses language about eternal life, that we can experience fullness of life starting here and going on for all eternity. So it's kind of got a little bit of a different flavor. And right in the heart of John's gospel, we constantly come up against these four questions. Um, Each week, this will come up. Um, Who is Jesus? This is part of what the seven I am saying is about. Who is Jesus? Um, What was his mission on earth? Who are we in light of what Christ has done for us? And what is our mission here in London, here in Finsbury Park in the 21st century? So you've got this flow. Um, I I would suggest this is a flow of how God renews and transforms culture, how the kingdom of God breaks out. It starts with the character and nature of God. God's being, who he is. And then everything flows out of God's character in his heart. So all the activity that we're going to read of, of Jesus in the Gospels, is an overflow of God's identity and God's character. And everything Christ does transforms who we are. So you get this flow. God's being shapes God's doing. And from the overflow of God's doing, in particular the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we are transformed. That's why Paul says in the New Testament that we're a new creation because of what Christ has done. And as we get transformed, things begin to flow out of us and we become agents of transformation in the surrounding culture. So this series, we're going to be focusing on God's being, his character, these seven sayings. We're going to focus on God's doing, his activity. We're going to focus on how that transforms us and how we become agents of transformation. Um, So that's the journey we're going to be on. Um, And each week, we're going to focus on one of the seven I am sayings. So Jesus constantly says, I am dot, dot, dot. Um, Here's some of the examples. In fact, here's all of the examples, seven being the number of completion, by the way, the number of perfection. So Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the true vine. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Every time Jesus is taking the name for God in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh, from the Hebrew verb haya, which sounds a bit like haya, um, or haya, a karate child, 
workshop, and that's the Hebrew verb, um, I am, you are, he is. And Yahweh, this name for God, is basically I am, or I am that I am. So every time Jesus has one of these sayings, he's basically saying, I am the full revelation of God. This God that you've been worshipping for centuries, I am that God in human flesh, living and breathing and doing life in your midst. Each of these seven sayings is a claim to divinity, right? But more than just being a claim to divinity, he's explaining and revealing the character of God. If you read through the Old Testament, you get this kind of partial revelation of God's nature, but it's surrounded in mystery. The focus is, is that God is transcendent. He, he's kind of beyond knowing, beyond our understanding, and yet Jesus turns up and says, I am, dot, dot, dot. In other words, I'm the God that you've been worshipping in human flesh amongst you, and I want you to know the character and the nature of that God. So I'm going to begin to reveal that to you, and we're going to unpack these statements, because they are beautiful, loaded statements that tell us something of the beauty of the God that we worship. So you've got seven I am statements. More than that, you've got seven miracles. Um, so he changes water into wine. He heals an official son. He heals the paralytic. He feeds the 5,000. He walks on water. He heals the blind man. He raises Lazarus from the dead. Now there's this lovely interplay that essentially each of the signs is an outworking of this revelation of God's character. So Jesus says, I'm the bread of life. And just so that you really understand what it means for me to be your provider, I'm going to feed 5,000 people in the desert with like bread from heaven. Like it's, it's a manifestation of God's true nature and identity. He says, I'm the light of the world, but I want you to grab hold of what that looks like. I'm going to open the eyes of the blind man. I am the gate, and we're going to look at that this morning. And then he heals the paralytic. I'm the good shepherd, and he shepherds um, the official son into full healing. He says, I'm the true vine, like the source of life and abundance. But just so that you get hold of that, I'm going to turn a whole load of water into wine, and we're going to have a party so that you can understand my nature. I'm the way the truth and the life and then he makes a way through the water I'm the resurrection and the life this isn't just conceptual stuff this is who I am and so that you grab hold of it I'm going to raise Lazarus from the dead right everything God does is an overflow of who he is so back to this um, diagram essentially sorry um, you've got the seven I am statements you've got the seven signs and then we're going to unpack what does that mean for us in terms of our identity and how we live in the world, in London, in Finsbury Park. Um, so, John 20. This is John essentially giving the purpose for this biography of Jesus. This is what this series is all about. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So there was loads of stuff that Jesus was doing, but John's just chosen seven. Um, why has he chosen seven? It says this in verse 31. These seven, or these ones, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I've given you these seven statements of the identity and character of God, these seven signs, so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised one. And more than that, by believing, you may experience this fullness of life that Jesus is constantly talking about. So my hope and prayer at the beginning of this series, as we go through, isn't just that you'd be wowed by these miracles and these revelations, insights into the character and nature of God. I do pray for that. But my deep prayer is that by hearing and seeing these signs, we might believe in Jesus. Because by believing in Jesus, we experience fullness of life. 
Um, so that's what this series is about, and we're going to begin um, by looking at this passage that was read earlier. Are you ready for the beginning? Ooh, not convinced. So you're ready as we get underway. Good. Um, so you've got this amazing story that was read beautifully earlier. I don't know if it hit you as Kate was reading it, just the awkwardness of the encounter, that you've got this guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years. That's it's a very, very long time, I think you'll agree. Um, and he's by a pool that is known for its healing properties. And then Jesus turns up on the scene and he engages in conversation with this paralyzed guy and says, um, do you want to get well? Like, I don't know about you, but if I'd been in the crowd, I think I'd have probably winced. Like, oh, like he's been paralyzed for 38 years. He's by a pool that's known for healing properties. He clearly wants to get well. Like, awkward moment. So either Jesus has just sort of not got huge pastoral sensitivity or something utterly profound is, and beautiful is going on, right? It's, it's one of those two options, and, and I think you're, you can guess that it's going to be the second option, that something deeply profound is going on. Why would Jesus say to a paralyzed guy lying by a pool with healing properties, do you want to get well? Here's the reason. What do we do when we're in pain? The answer is we compensate. Whenever you're in pain, whether it be physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, you, you will compensate. Your body will compensate. So if, if you've hurt your ankle, um, you'll begin to limp. Why do you limp? It's because you're taking weight off the ankle um, so that you can recover. What happens when you're emotionally feeling really flat, um, battling with depression? Um, there's a very good chance you'll withdraw. You, you will compensate because the energy it takes to be around a lot of people can be overwhelming, so you begin to isolate yourself. It's just part of compensating. What happens when you've got a, a, a migraine? You'll go into a dark room, probably lie down. Whenever you're in pain, be it physical, emotional, spiritual, mental, any other form of, of illness, your body, your being will compensate. Um, now, what happens when you've been ill over a very significant period of time, i.e. 38 years? Your body will compensate again and again until it affects your posture, the, the way that you physically interact with your surroundings. It will you know, impact the way you emotionally engage in your surroundings. It will impact your mindsets, your worldviews, how you see the world around you. It affects everything, right? It almost becomes part of who you are, um, part of your identity. So we find ourselves saying things like this, it's just the way that I am, the way I'm behaving, that, you're finding annoying. Well, it's just the way that I am. Um, or this is my cross to bear. This is my struggle. Notice the language. It's part of who I am. It's part of my journey. I, I, have you ever heard anyone say this? I'm just an angry person. It's not my fault. It's your fault. You made me angry. And, and I'm an, just an angry person. I can't help it. Um, I'm just an addictive personality type. You know, I have a genetic predisposition towards addiction. I'm just an addictive personality type. I've always been this way. Have you heard that one? Um, I, I've always been this way. And, and the answer is, you weren't always that way. What happened is you experienced pain, you compensated, and as you compensate again and again and again, it begins to impact how you relate to the world. So you, you weren't always that way, but you've probably been that way for such a long time, you can't remember life before you started compensating. Um, or I'm, I'm that kind of person that always battles with low self-esteem. Or I'm just an anxious type of, of character. All these things, they basically reveal that these sort of like markers have become something of who we are. We've befriended the pain. 
right? We've befriended the pain. It's become part of our identity. So when Jesus basically says to this guy that's been compensating for 38 years and it's become part of who he is, he says, like, do you want to get well? He's basically saying, are you willing to leave what's become unbelievably familiar behind? Are you willing to lose a friend? You know, over time, you know, we all do this. We befriend our pain. Are you willing to lose a friend? Now, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. I, I believe he'd ask the same question to us. Like, do you want to get well? I'm not going to impose my will, which is to heal upon you. Do you want to get well? Because some of us have befriended our pain. Um, to embrace healing meaning, means saying goodbye to what has become familiar. Some of us can't imagine life without the pain. And if you can't imagine life without the pain, we don't imagine life without the pain. And we embrace the present. So Jesus says, do you want to get well? There's an amazing book um, called Soul Survivor, um, written by Philip Yancey, brilliant writer. And he basically, um, each chapter looks at one of his heroes of the faith. There's a chapter on Martin Luther King and Mother Teresa. Um, but there's this one chapter of a guy I'd never come across called Dr. Paul Brand. Um, Dr. Paul Brown was an unbelievable medical professor who could have risen right to the top of, of his profession, um, but decided he didn't want to do that. He wanted to go and live and serve amongst the leper colonies of India um, and give his time to finding medical you know, breakthroughs that could serve lepers in those colonies. And he, he came across some incredible discoveries. A, a little example, I love this one. Um, one of the ways leprosy can impact a leper is it, you know, quite early on you can go blind. And you go blind because the muscles around the eyes begin to atrophy. Um, so you can't blink anymore. And if you can't blink, your eyes begin to dry up. Um, and then very quickly, once they dry up, you begin to lose sight. So he found a way of connecting the muscles in the eyes to the muscles in the hand. So anytime a leper would move the hand, their eyes would begin to blink, which would keep moisture around the eyeball and would keep their sight. That's just brilliant, isn't it? You know, and he came up with many such discoveries. But he wrote a famous article um, called The Gift of Pain. I just want that to hit you as a, a title. The Gift of Pain. Now, in the Western world, we think of pain as a curse. And his article was essentially, you know, you, you've got to reframe your mind. Pain is a gift. Pain is like an alarm bell telling you to act so that you can do something to avoid further pain. Let me give you a very practical example. I was making tea for a friend a little while ago. It doesn't happen often. Um, but I was in a generous, you know, mind of, uh, mode of thinking. So I, I basically, we went to the kitchen. It was at a church. Um, and I tried to find the kettle, but I couldn't find a kettle anywhere. And I was like, oh, there must be a kettle. And then saw an urn, one of those big metal urns. And I was like, there's no way it's been, you know, left on overnight. Um, but I'll just check. So I put my hand on the urn. Um, and, and it was cold. So I was like, yeah, it's clearly not on. But there's another way I can check. Why don't I just pour a little bit of the water onto my hand? That's, that's the way to check if the water's boiling. I'll just pour a little bit of the potentially boiling water onto my hand, um, which is crazy logic, but it's what I went for in the moment. So I just poured a little bit of the water onto my hand. It was actually boiling. It was actually boiling. Um, now, within a nanosecond, I'd move my hand. Right? The alarm bell kicked in, and I just reacted, moved my hand. A leper wouldn't move the hand because it wouldn't be able to feel the pain. If a leper was wearing shoes and the shoes were too tight and they began to blister, they wouldn't feel that. So they'd keep walking and do more and more damage to their feet. If they hurt the ankle, they wouldn't limp because they don't know they're in pain and therefore they can't compensate. So they do more and more damage. And gradually over time, the body begins to break down, right? And he said the greatest gift you could give to a leper 
would be pain. So that they would know they were hurting and they could do something about it. The question I want to ask you is, is what alarm bells are ringing? In his article, Dr. Paul Brown said, like, pain is like an alarm bell. It, you know, and it's an invitation. What are you going to do about the pain? What are you going to do about the pain? Here's what most of us do, and we've become really good at this, particularly in a Western context, is we just hit the snooze button. Don't want to experience pain because we see pain as a curse. So we just hit, hit the snooze button and we have different sort of mechanisms for doing that. So when you're physically hurting, this is what a lot of people do in a city like this, is like, my work won't survive without me. Like, I am just unbelievably important. Everything would fall apart without me. Um, so even though my body's in pain, I'm just going to hit the snooze button. I'm going to, you know, knock back a couple of ibuprofen. I'm going to, you know, hit some caffeine hard. You know, a couple of lemsips on the way to work. Because I'm going to be ready for this day at work. Because my workplace needs me. Um, and, and we develop that kind of mindset of like, I'm going to hit the snooze button. Emotionally. When you begin to feel that stuff that's pulling your soul down, what, what do you do? It's like, I don't want to feel this. I don't want to feel this. What's going to help? Netflix. There's a new box set on Netflix. That will be the distraction. When you're feeling anxiety, what do a lot of people do in a city like this? They don't have time to actually process the anxiety. They don't want to listen to the alarm bell. Just have a couple of drinks. This is language we use in a city like this. A couple of drinks, it helps me take the edge off it. I don't want to feel the pain. I don't have time for the pain. I'm going to hit the snooze button. What happens in a city like this when there's almost 10 million people? The vast majority um, are feeling sort of physical exhaustion, emotional anxiety, like mental stress. Um, what happens when the vast majority are hurting but hitting the snooze button? And the answer is like more pain, right? More pain. You've got two options when the alarm bell starts ringing. You hit the snooze or you listen to the alarm and you act. And you ignore the alarms at your peril. There's a brilliant writer, um, a Franciscan priest called Richard Rohr. Um, and on the subject of spirituality, he has some fascinating insights. I don't agree with everything he says, but some fascinating insights. He says spirituality is essentially a matter of what you do with your pain. And he says you've got two options as to what you do with your pain. You either transmit it or you bring it to God and he transforms it. There's no third option. You either transmit it or you bring it to God and he transforms it. So what are you going to do with your pain? A lot of people, they try and bury it, and they think that by burying the pain, they're going to contain it. I don't want this to affect my kids. I don't want this to affect my spouse. I don't want this to affect my friends or my colleagues at work. So I'm going to push it right down, and, and I think I'll be able to contain it. You will not be able to contain it. Like, buried emotion leads to depression. Like, eventually, it will always bleed out. It will always transmit. So you might think that you're containing the pain, but if you ask your nearest and dearest, how am I doing when it comes to containing my pain? It might be a painful moment of revelation of like, I thought I contained it, but I'm transmitting all of this stuff that I'm pushing down. What's the alternative to transmitting it? And the answer is you bring it to Jesus and he transforms it. You bring it to Jesus and he transforms it. A very close friend of mine was going through a real struggle in their life. Um, and they went to see their spiritual director that was a mother superior. And my friend was basically articulating just all the struggles. You know, like my work, it's, it's a mess. There's these relational dynamics that are messy. Um, this is the kind of anxiety patterns that I'm experiencing. And they kind of summed up at the end. They said, I just feel like when I look at my life, there's crap everywhere. I said this to the mother superior. And the mother superior sort of like just waited in silence and then responded to my friend and said this, well, you do know that God is an expert at taking the crap of our lives and turning it into manure. 
That's quoting a mother superior. No complaints to me. Quoting a mother superior. Um, what, what a profound thought. That her response to my friend is like, well, you do know that, that God is more than just a creator. He's a redeemer. He will take all of that mess. He'll use it as manure for kingdom stuff to grow again. In other words, bring your pain to him. He has a perfect track record of redeeming and restoring and creating beauty from pain. In, in my book, at least, the best art comes from redeemed pain. The greatest films have this kind of thread of redemption going through them. This is what God does. It's his nature as a creator, but also as a redeemer. Let's go back to the Garden of Eden for one moment, Adam and Eve. So we know the story that they end up outside of the garden. Um, They mess up. They hide from God. Um, And in that moment, um, they're experiencing shame, aren't they? It's shame that causes people to hide. Shame is different to guilt, by the way. Guilt is when you've done something wrong, um, but it feels separate from you. I'm, yeah, I did this, I feel guilt. And you can displace guilt, right? You can blame someone else, find someone else to put it on. Um, Shame isn't about something you've done, it's about who you are. It's fundamentally about identity. Guilt is about activity, shame is about identity. There's something wrong with me. You can't put shame on someone else. You can't displace it. It's, It's something we feel in a very deep way. So Adam and Eve, they leave the garden, they're in the wilderness, um, they're experiencing shame, right? Um, And then we know in the text that God comes looking for them and he asks them a simple question. Adam and Eve, like, where are you? Adam and Eve, where are you? Just think about this for a moment, because it is, it's, an, it's an amazing thought that God, who is all-knowing, there's three immutable characteristics of God. He's omniscient, he knows everything. He's omnipotent, he's all-powerful. He's omnipresent, he's everywhere at the same time. In other words, he knows where Adam and Eve are. They're hiding probably behind a tree, and, and he basically dignifies them by saying, Adam and Eve, where are you? In other words, do you want to be found? Where are you? Now, God knows where they are. He knows that they found fig leaves to cover up their shame. He knows that Adam's fig leaf is probably double the size it actually needs to be. Like, he he knows how shame plays out, right? Um, So why would he ask the question, where where are you? The answer is he respects the dignity of their freedom. He doesn't impose his will upon them. The question is, do you actually want to be found? Do you want to be found? So when Jesus encounters a a paralyzed guy that's been paralyzed for 38 years and he's lying by um, water with healing properties, he still dignifies the freedom of the paralyzed man. He says, like, do you want to get well? In other words, where are you? As I said, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Like, by his spirit, he's moving throughout the room, asking you the question, like, Matt, where are you? Dave, where are you? Sarah, Minor, Grace, like where, where are you? Where are you? Because I want to find you. Because when I find you, I will bring fullness of life to you. Let me read you this from 2 Corinthians um, chapter 6. This is from the message translation. Um, hopefully it'll appear on, this, on the screen. I can't go backwards. Can you go back? Is there a, a Corinthians passage? Otherwise, I'll just read it to you. Um, this is what it says in 2 Corinthians 6. Paul says, dear, dear Corinthians, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide, open, spacious life. We didn't fence you in. The smallness you feel comes from within you. Your lives aren't small, but you're living them in a small way. I'm speaking as plainly as I can with great affection. Open up your lives. Live openly and expansively. This is Paul basically saying to the church in Corinth that he adores. Like, 
Don't let pain restrict your life. Don't turn in on yourself and live a small life. Jesus has come that you may have life and life in all its fullness. So bring your pain to him. That's the pathway to living openly and expansively. I want you to live open and expansive lives. So back to the the passage then um, in John um, 5. I want you to remember the story that there's this guy, 38 years, he's by um, a you know, pool with healing properties, and it says in the text that that is essentially by a sheep gate in Jerusalem. Um, now, there is in Jerusalem, near the sheep gate, a pool. Um, so, this pool is known in the area that every so often the waters stir and there's a race because there was this mindset that the first person to get in the pool when it begins to stir would experience healing. Now imagine the reputation of a pool like that near the sheep gate. Like you can imagine that families and friends were saying to other family and friends that were experiencing illness and sickness, like there's a sheep gate. Like make sure when the water stir, you do whatever it takes, get to the sheep gate so that when the water stir, you can be first in and experience healing. You can imagine like the reputation of this sheep gate would just spread through Jerusalem. Like get ready, apparently the waters might stir soon. Get to the sheep gate, get to the sheep gate right? So imagine that kind of reputation. So with John 5 ringing in your ears, um, I want to turn to John chapter 10, um, which is one of the I am statements. Um, Everyone in Jerusalem aware of the sheep gate. If you get to the sheep gate, there's a pool. The pool has healing properties. Everyone's racing to get there. And Jesus says to the people, I am the gate. I am, Hebrew name for God, Yahweh, the full revelation of of Yahweh. But more than that, I want you to know that I I am the gate. Those of you longing for healing, you're not going to find it in those waters. Where are you going to find the healing? You're going to find it right here because I am the gate. Whoever enters through me, the gate, will be saved. Greek word used there is sozo. Sozo means kind of like healing. Um, It's kind of a holistic term. It can refer to physical healing, emotional healing, spiritual healing. It's not just a ticket to heaven when you die. It's healing right here, right now, through the gate. Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will experience this salvation. They will come in and they will go out and they will find pasture, like a wide open space. This is what Paul was talking about, living openly and expansively. He then says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. So there's a thief, someone who will oppose life. The thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Um, I would say one of the greatest manifestations of the presence of the thief in our time, in our age, when it comes to our well-being, is the thief will basically say, hit the snooze button. You're hurting, right? Just plow on. Emotionally, just feeling right on the edge. Netflix will help. Have another drink. That relationship didn't work out. Just... Get into another one. Find another codependent relationship. That will bring healing. You need a bit of a buzz? Another bet will do it. Go on, treat yourself. Numb the pain. Another drink. Feed the addiction. Go on, do it. Do it. That's how the thief will be whispering to many of us. Ignore the alarm. Ignore the pain. Like, bury it. Bury it. And we live in a city where that's the kind of default mindset of many people when it comes to pain. Pain is a curse. I need to bury it. What if pain is an alarm? 
basically saying choose life, choose life. There are plenty other gates. This is what Jesus is saying. I am the gate. There are other gates. There are other places you can take your pain. You could take it to your career, hoping that success will heal you. It won't. You could take it to a relationship, hoping that marriage or that relationship will heal you. It won't. You could take it, you know, to just trying to accumulate more possessions, you know, get more money, thinking that will heal you. It won't. C.S. Lewis, a brilliant writer, said idols, in other words, these other gates, idols always break the hearts of their worshippers. If you go to the wrong gates, it, it will break your heart. It will break your heart. Jesus says, I am the gate. Dear, dear Corinthians, as Paul says, dear, dear people of St. Saviour's, I can't tell you how much I long for you to enter this wide open, spacious life, wide open space. You know the name of Jesus? The Aramaic name is Yehoshua, um, Joshua, basically. Um, but the shortened one is, is Yahshua. And the root word of Yahshua is the Hebrew term for salvation, Yasha. It literally means Yahweh saves. Um, but in the Hebrew mindset, Yasha, salvation, means a wide open space. So Jesus' name, like the closest translation would be Yahweh, in other words, God, leads you to a wide open space. So the name of Jesus contains his mission. His mission is to lead his people, those that want it, to a wide open space. That's his heart. That's his intention for us this morning. He wants us to lead us to a wide open space so that we might live openly and expansively, but he will never force his will upon you. So the question is, do you want it? Do you want it? Where are the alarm bells ringing in your life? Where are you hurting? Like, ask yourself the question now. Is it a physical thing? Is it an emotional thing? Is it a mental thing? Is it a spiritual thing, feeling disconnected from God or, or whatever it might be? Where's the alarm bell? Because of our brokenness, we're all broken, right? We share that. Um, there will be some alarm bells going off in your life right now. What are you going to do about it? Are you going to hit the snooze button or are you going to bring your pain to Jesus, the one who said, I am the gate? Let me close with one story. A friend of mine went to speak at a, a conference and he invited a number of friends to come along. Um, the conference was about hearing the voice of God um, and basically the prophetic. So the speaker said to a number of friends, I want you to get on the stage and then in front of the congregation, just call out prophetic words, what you sense God might want to say over others in the room. Um, so one of my friends was, was part of that um, and there was a time of stillness where they asked God to speak. Um, to give them prophetic words. So my friend was on the stage trying to listen to God, um, at the same time trying not to humiliate himself by saying something completely heretical or crazy. Um, and what dropped into his mind um, was the word skadula. Now my friend's Greek. Um, skadula is a Greek word, it, it means excrement. Um, and he was like, that cannot be God. I don't know where that thought has come from. Um, I'm not going to say that. No way. Not going to say that. Lord, you're going to have to have another word if that's you, because I'm not going to say that. And the more he's trying to listen to God for something else, the more the, the phrase skadula is just in his mind. He's like, no, 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 I can't do that. I can't do that. Um, but it just keeps coming. And eventually the guy who's hosting the, the seminar says, look, you know, to the team and then to my friend. He's like, have you got anything for people in the congregation? And my friend's like, oh, no, I can't do this, can't do this. But then it just comes out of his mouth. He says, I think there might be someone in the room. And God says to you, you're not a skadula and then looks at the floor, hoping that it will swallow him up. Um, and they share some other words, and then the guy says, okay, we're just going to see if, if God was actually speaking. Um, let's start with the first word. You know, this word that God says you're not a skadula, did that connect to anyone in the room? Um, and this lady just put her hand in the air, said, that, that's for me. Um, so the, 
the speaker just said, well, can you just explain how that relates to your circumstances? And she said this, she said, yeah, I used to be married to a guy, um, a Greek man, he was very abusive towards me. And his nickname for me was my little skadula. In other words, my piece of crap. And that's how he'd always refer to me. Hey, skadula, I want my dinner. Hey, skadula, can you go and tidy this up? Hey, skadula. She said, I, I lived for years and years with that spoken over me to the point that deep down on my darkest days, I genuinely believe that I'm just a piece of crap. Um, so to hear God say over me, you're not a skadula, is the words I've been longing to hear for the last decade in my life. And a number of people just rally around her, place their hands upon her and say, come Holy Spirit, and she begins to break down weeping, right? I mean, just the most amazing moment of God breaking into the pain and bringing healing. What was her experience in that moment? Her experience was Jesus being the gate. That the alarm bell, she'd hit the snooze button for so long, but she could hear the alarm bell again. She brought the pain to Jesus and began to experience healing. How beautiful is that? This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus does. And when we say to Jesus, I want to bring my pain to you, I can guarantee you, he'll heal, he'll restore. Why? Because he is the gate. Why don't we stand? So just before we go into communion, we're just going to have a minute of just being still. Asking the Spirit to search our hearts. That's what the psalmist says. Search me, O God. Know my thoughts. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there's any offensive way me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Spirit, help me hear the alarm bells so that I can bring my pain to Jesus, who in turn will lead me to a spacious place, a wide open space. Spirit come. Spirit come. And as the spirit just begins to highlight thought patterns, behavioral patterns, stuff that's going on, I just want to encourage you to simply say, I welcome you, Jesus. To come into that mess. To redeem and restore, to make new. Spirit come.